Counseling 8, describing biblical categories, the operations of the devil. Is there a difference between believers and unbelievers regarding the activity of the devil? And what is the biblical methodology for responding to the demonic in the context of counseling? So three aspects of that question you need to um, answer. And we're going to spend a chunk of time thinking about the first category. How does the devil operate? Um, Is there a difference between believers and unbelievers? That's the second part. And then a methodology. That last part of the question is essentially asking, do you believe in casting out demons? And if not, then how do you deal with demons if you're not going to cast them out? Uh, Lee has an opinion, evidently. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So let's think about an overview of the devil and his work. We understand that Satan exists. Um, Seven books of the Old Testament mention him directly by name. Nineteen books of the New Testament mention him. And the rest of the books... Uh, The other uh, seven books don't mention him by name, but there's clearly an undertone about uh, the guy who's operating behind sin in the flesh. And um, and so his his existence is strongly implied or inferred in other ways. Christ mentions him 25 times. That's not insignificant. So Christ obviously believes in the existence of Satan, Um, his personality. Remember, when we're talking about personality, what do we mean? He's a person. How is he different from us as people? He doesn't have a body, right? So the the, the big difference is he's he's a person, but um, in spirit form, not in bodily form. So by by personality, we mean um, personal pronouns are used of him. Uh, we see that throughout the scriptures, and we see all kinds of personal characteristics. He has intellect, he has emotions, he has will. So. Um, emotions like hatred, he hates Israel, he hates Christ, um, he hates truth, he hates righteousness, he loves sin, he loves deception, those kinds of things. Uh, he has intellect. Uh, he is foolish, but he's not stupid, right? So you understand that distinction. See, he's incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, incredibly observant, uh, though he is foolish with all of the knowledge that he has. He has a will. What's his will? To destroy. To destroy. To destroy and kill. Um, and we see that evidenced in multiple ways. Uh, origin and nature of Satan. We see his origin in his names. See his character in his names. He is Satan. He's the adversary. That's the most common name, I think. Uh, Satan, he's the adversary. That's what that name means. It's used 52, 52 times in Scripture. He's the evil one. That is, he is the one who is the ultimate uh, source of evil and the ultimate evil himself. He is the devil, that is, he is the slanderer. He is the serpent, which refers to his subtlety and his craftiness. He is the tempter. Um, he is the prince of this world. We'll talk about that again in just a minute. He is the prince of demons, that is, he is the authority over all the other demons. Uh, he is the god of this age. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He is the angel of light. Not true light, obviously, right? So he he deceives about what light really is. He purports to... Uh, reveal light but he is not giving true light Uh, he is the accuser of the brethren we'll talk about that again in just a minute that is revelation 12 10 and he is the head of the house of evil and the only place where the the name lucifer which is a common name uh, for which he is known is used is in isaiah 14 and only king james uses that i think um, the new american standard uses the the translation of the word lucifer uh, which is morning star um, which is uh, but King James uses uses the transliteration, Lucifer. Um, what's his history? Uh, he enjoyed, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28, and we can see something of him. Ezekiel 28, you should be familiar with this, I think, starting in verse 12. Ezekiel starts by talking about the king of Tyre, but it's very obvious that even though he identifies the king of Tyre, he understands he's talking about someone beyond the king of Tyre. He's talking about the authority behind the king of Tyre. And we see that immediately in verse 12. Son of man, he says, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection. And you think, oh, that sounds like something beyond just the king of Tyre. And certainly as he begins to explain it even more, we see that you were full of wisdom. 
You were perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And there it's very clear. He's talking about the force that is behind the king of Tyre. He's talking about Satan himself. Uh, Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, and the gold uh, and the workmanship of your settings and the sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. And all those things point to the privileged position that Satan had at the beginning, at creation, when uh, when he was made. So he's in this exalted position. Uh, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. The anointing points to a privileged position. The cherub is one of the names for angels in the Old Testament. Who covers, I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. We don't know what necessarily all of those allusions are other than to demonstrate it's it's a very privileged, unique position that Satan had. Uh, Satan was wise. He was intelligent. Uh, he was perfect in beauty. So when he was created, there was no sin in him. He was sinless uh, and he walked in that way. And then... Uh, Verse 15, he fell from his exalted position. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. So from the very beginning, he was blameless, much like Adam, created in blamelessness. And then this statement, until unrighteousness was found in you. And that's the inception of sin. So what you have is Satan in heaven... With sin in his heart. Where did that come from? I don't know. Uh, it came in the middle of verse 15. And, 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 and we just don't know. I think what we can say is that he was created like Adam and Eve. He was created sinless, but was not yet in a state of confirmed sinlessness. Um, as the angels became after the fall. So... The supposition is that had Adam and Eve not sinned, at some point they would have been confirmed in their holiness. They did sin. They were not confirmed in their holiness. The other angels in heaven were confirmed in their holiness. Um, But there was something in Satan that allowed him to move towards sin. It developed in his heart. It was found within him. And then he rebelled. How did he rebel? By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. So again, pointing to that internal motivation, it's inside of him. And you sinned. Therefore, I've cast you out as profane from the mountain of God, and I've destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Um, it's really clear in this text that what was the, that the source of his downfall was his pride. We see that in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. So he considered himself. He considered his exalted position in heaven. And that was the source of his destruction. Um, one writer says, Frederick Lee, he says, the sin of Satan and the demons was arrogant revolt. Um, and what we find um, in this is not just that he was arrogant. Isaiah uh, 14 may be alluding to the same thing. It's it's unclear. Some commentators say Isaiah 14 is this same instance in Isaiah 14, you have five declarative statements. I will, I will, I will. Essentially, I will exalt myself into the heavens, to the holy place of God, etc. Here we have six I will statements from God that match and supersede the five I will statements that we find in um, Isaiah chapter 14. If you take Isaiah 14 as referring to Satan, um, then that's helpful to look at it that way here. Uh, one one person says the ultimate moral question of the universe is this. Can the creature, in fact, become equal to the creator? That's what's going on in Ezekiel 28. Is the created equal to the creator? And the answer, obviously, is no, of course not. Um, 
We also find that Satan is a morally responsible person and he is accountable to God. Job makes that really clear. Job is so helpful on so many levels. Uh, and it makes it really clear that Satan in a, is in a subservient position to God. Uh, he is accountable to God. He cannot act on his own except from the permission of God. So someone has said, it's been attributed to Luther. Um, I don't think it was Luther, though perhaps it could have been. Um, the devil is God's devil, right? So when the devil acts, when Satan acts, he is only acting with the permission of God. He cannot act on his own uh, contrary to God's will. Everything that he does is is an expression of the accomplishment of God's permissive will. God permits him to act in the way that he does. Um, Satan is deceptive, scheming to defeat all Christians. He is our adversary, prowling around, seeking whom he might devour, 1 Peter chapter 5. He slanders Christians and is uh, a schemer against them. That's Revelation chapter 12. We'll come back in a few minutes and look at that a little bit more carefully. He is the prince of this world. Okay. Is Christ the Lord of all? So how is Satan the prince of this world? Okay, good. And it's a permissive position, right? So he, again, is operating only under the authority of God. And he is prince of the world system, right? So everything that is contrary to God, he is the prince of that. All who are opposed to God, he is their prince. He is their leader uh, until they are redeemed out of that system. So he is the prince in that way. Uh, Frederick Leahy says Satan has no authority to rule men for man was never his own master and therefore there could be no scepter of rule belonging to man which was transferable to Satan after the fall. God has given Satan no dominion over man. Man is within the dominion of Satan as it says in Acts 26 only because of his sin. So man only belongs to Satan because of his sinfulness. He's only attached to Satan because of his sin. Uh, Satan has no inherent authority over him. In revolt against God, man aligned himself with Satan. And in this sense, Satan is his God and his prince. Man is captive in the jurisdiction of darkness. Uh, he also says Satan is not sovereign in a rival kingdom to God but a rebel to whom God gives as much rope as will glorify his name. Note this as well. Satan is not the king of hell. He will be in hell. He's not there yet, but he will be. He is not going to be there as its ruler. He will be there as the greatest person under punishment and under wrath. He will carry no authority there. Um, he will carry out no actions there. Uh, but he will be the reception. He will be uh, the receiver of God's wrath while he is there. He's not sovereign in hell. He's judged in hell. Yes. Yeah. But okay. yes, God is in hell. But he is there as the executor of his wrath. Uh, Revelation 14 makes that clear that the that the Lamb is in hell pouring out His wrath. Um, so yes, that's that's very clear. Satan is powerful, incredibly powerful, but his power is limited. Uh, he is not omnipresent. He is restricted by God. Um, Christ is always interceding on our behalf and more powerful than Satan. We see that in Romans 8, for instance. Um, Satan is only used by God to accomplish God's purposes, so he cannot thwart God's will in any way. He is not powerful enough to overrule God's purposes um, or override God's intentions. And believers even have the authority and, or excuse me, the ability and the power to resist him. So he's strong, but we are not subject to him. We don't have to give in to him. Now, we do give in to the flesh, but we don't have to. 
we we can resist him, which is why James says, resist him and he will what? Flee. He'll run from you. So we don't have to be in terror of him. I was talking to somebody a little earlier this afternoon uh, on the phone and, and he said, well, what are you doing today? Well, I, I'm teaching one more time today. And, oh, what are you teaching? I'm teaching on demons. Oh, I hope you don't have to do that at night. <laughs> I don't care. I'll sleep just fine. I know the end of the story. And I don't say that flippantly, right? I, we, we dare not be flippant about Satan, but we also dare not minimize the authority and the power of God. We don't need to be in fear of Satan. Uh, we need to understand, yes, he's smart. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's observant. Yes, he desires our destruction, but he can't destroy us if we're in Christ. Yeah, he's a defeated enemy. Uh, and we don't need to walk in fear of him. Um, overview of demons and their work. Uh, demons are like Satan, fallen angels. Um, they were like Satan, created in unconfirmed holiness. Again, probably given some period of time to confirm their goodness or their wickedness and some, like Satan, chose evil. We think as many as a third of the angels in heaven fell with uh, Satan at that time when, when Satan rebelled, uh, Revelation 12, verse 4. Um, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. So that reference, a third of the stars of heaven, seems to be alluding to the angels that fell with Satan at the time of his rebellion against God. So a great many angels chose evil along with Satan. We see that as well in Ezekiel twenty-eight, fifteen. Um Note this as well. God has no redemptive plan for angels. Once they're fallen, they're fallen eternally. They are confirmed in their wickedness. There is no offer of grace. There is no offer of salvation made for, made for them uh, in the same way that God makes a plan of salvation available for men. So they are created beings like us, but there is no redemption for them. Um, they hate mankind because they are full of evil. Um, they are confirmed in their evil and there is nothing good in them. They have, they have no capacity for anything good. Um, They do not have a longing for redemption because there is nothing good in them. So I don't think, weak point, pound harder, um, talking from the white spaces in the text, um, I, there is no indication that they would have a longing to be with Christ because they hate him with every fiber of their being. Every atom within them is opposed to him. Unrelentingly so. Um, so there is, I, it's inconceivable that they would have a godly jealousy for something that they want because that would be, that would be a step towards redemption. They're incapable of being redeemed. So you're saying they're not like, oh dang it, I wish I hadn't mm. fallen from heaven now after all. It's kind of, kind of <laughs> it is a bad deal for them, but there doesn't appear to be anything. Yeah. I also have a question. That's the nature of sin. Right. When you sear your conscience, you just keep going further and further and further and further and further. And, and you think at some point, this, is, this was a really bad decision. But you will counsel with people. I have, I've had two conversations today about two different scenarios in which someone keeps moving towards ungodliness. And you just think, after the 20th 
I don't know how many it is with this one particular verse. And after the 20th incident of adultery, surely you'll wake up and say, this was a really bad idea. No, there's just this continued perpetuation. What's happening is your heart gets hardened. And, and you sear your conscience. That's what Paul talks about in First, First Timothy 4. When your conscience is seared, your conscience is cut off, it cannot respond to truth anymore. And I think that's what's happened to my friend who I used to think was a brother in Christ. So, and, and, and that's, that, that's even more the case for Satan and the fallen angels. You had another question? Yeah, so I know at least one person that says they've like, specifically as some other kind of being like specifically to you know be a tempter or something so what, how, how would you respond to that um ezekiel 28 okay. it's 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 clear <laughs> yeah it's clear from the text uh that 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 he's he is of the same class in order uh jude would allude to that as well um i think so glenn Uh, help me keep coming. Okay. Well, if if free will means my eternal destruction, may I never have free will, right? <laughs> I, that doesn't sound very free to me. And that, that's why I think it's, it was Whitfield that said, "Man is only free to choose sin." So everybody's there. Um, uh, it was Bavink that said, "There's not one atom in the, in this universe over which the Lord does not say mine. Every atom is under the sovereign control and authority of God. It's all His. So in that sense, there's no free will. Now, obviously, we act um, on our own, but um, it's all." to accomplish God's sovereign purposes. And how do those fit together? I don't know. But they're, they're both true. No, he's not a man. He's an angel. Yeah, yeah, he's different. He's a spirit being, not a, not a physical being like we are. I'm sorry? He is created. He's a created being. Yes, created being. Yeah, he's not a human being. Doesn't have a tangible physical body. He's a spirit, but but he's created. Just because it's created doesn't mean I have to be able to see it and touch it and feel it and smell it, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's why. Yeah, that's why we keep talking about right. He's a person, but don't think body, right? And same as. Uh, the Godhead, etc. Okay, we must move on. Uh, types of demons. Um, there are some demons who occupy positions still in the heavenlies, so they are still there. There are some who are ro- who roam the earth, and I've given you text for all this, right? So I'm not. We don't have time to go through all of it, but there there it is for you. There are those who are currently shut up in the abyss, um, and they will be released during the tribulation. And there are some who are bound at the fall, so they're kicked out of heaven and immediately bound. Uh, and they will be kept in chains until the final judgment. Uh, Peter talks about them in his second letter. Um, what are demons like? They are spirit beings like the angels. They are localized. What do I mean by localized? It means they are monopresent. One place at one time. Now, they're really fast. <laughs> Somebody heard me talking this afternoon about going to see my dad, and he heard me say two hours. He said, what are you driving? Because <laughs> my dad lives in Tampa. He said, where's your dad? I said, Tampa. What are you driving? I want to drive that. <laughs> no, 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 airplane, airplane. <laughs> so um, so they're, de- demons are like that. They're really quick. They can get from here to there really, really fast. But 
they're always only in one place at one time. They're not omnipresent like God is. They are intelligent. They are theologians. How do we know they're theologians? Well, they have a whole doctrinal system. First Timothy chapter 4, the doctrine of demons. So they have a way of looking at the world and skewing truth according to Satan's perspective. So I don't know if they have their equivalent of uh, John MacArthur or Wayne Grudem, but, <laughs> but um, there, there's something that is they understand. This is, this is what demons believe. This is how we operate. This is, this is our guiding source. Uh, they understand God. They understand his wrath. Uh, they understand coming judgment that they will face. That's James chapter 2. Um, what do they do? They oppose God. They oppose God's angels. They oppose God's people. Uh, multiple examples of that. They support the work of Satan, obviously. They indwell bodies. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. That's an important one. Uh, they indwell bodies, both of humans and of animals. So that demon dog might really be a demon dog. <laughs> we know there are demon pigs. Right? So... Um, so they indwell bodies. They influence the mind. How do they primarily influence the mind? Okay. Lies. How do they tempt? I, I don't disagree. I just want you to think a little bit further. Okay. They they entice and they tempt and influence the mind primarily through the world system. So there's a philosophy of the world, right? We are destroying, 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, we are destroying speculations, ideologies, and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, Who's behind the LGBTQ movement? Satan. Satan. It's his doctrine. And who's behind every other perverse doctrine in this world? Who's behind so much of that's broadcast in so-called entertainment? It's satanic ideology. And I don't think, you know, weird movie stuff. Um but it's it's false religious systems. It's ideologies, anything that is opposed to the truth of God, that comes out of the pit of hell. And that's where Satan is operating. He doesn't need to get in our heads and inhabit us. He's just he's after influencing us through the things that are around us. And he's plenty capable of doing that. That's his primary influence. So when we say they influence the mind, we're not talking you know, well, there's a demon in every person. No, 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 no. Um, the, the, flesh, the flesh is good enough to take us to a lot of places we don't need to be. And then the world system that influences the flesh uh, is the primary problem. Um, so hold that thought. Uh, and if I don't address it, come back. But I'll, the short answer is no. Satan can't... Satan, in Scripture, and I'll mention this in a minute, Satan has only been said to inhabit one person in Scripture. Scripture only talks about Satan inhabiting Judas. He's not said to inhabit anybody else. Other Satan himself, specifically. Now, his minions, the demons, are said to inhabit a great many people, and we find many examples of that um, in the Scriptures. Um, But they can only inhabit unbelievers. Satan is Satan is not in your head, and his demons aren't in your head. Your flesh is in your head, and that's problematic enough. And I've not been in your head, but I've been in my head. All right, and and that's a problem. And and he does not. He cannot read your mind. Now he he and his angels are observant. They can't read what's in your mind, but they can see. And they can hear. So they can hear what you're saying. And they can see what you're looking at. And they can watch where you're going. And they can put two and two together. They're pretty observant. They're pretty astute. Okay. Um, 
So they they can influence through the world system, but they're, it's not like Satan's in your head giving these little ideas. One, as a believer, he can't be. Uh, but he doesn't need that. He's got the world system, and that's that's plenty to try and lead us astray. Someone told me one time not to pray out loud because I couldn't hear you. <laughs> I pray out. I mean, obviously, you know, but where did that come from, though? Fear. Uh, mm-hmm. Let him hear. Mm-hmm. Greater is he who is in you than he's in the world. Um, I pray out loud all the time. Frankly, it helps me keep attentive to what I'm thinking about. When I pray silently, my mind wanders all over the place. When I pray out loud, now I'm attentive. Um, And I just find that to be much more helpful. And if Satan hears, great. Um, He he can hear what's the concern of my heart, and I'm okay with that. Uh, They deceive the nations. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll see the ultimate... Uh, of that in that they will gather the nations together against Israel and Christ at the end of the age. Uh, they deceive people, uh, Satan contempt, and the angels, the, the fallen angels contempt people and lead them astray. Um, they are a source of apostasy. Again, all untruth comes from Satan and his minions. Demon possession. This is This is the heart of the question. Uh, Let me give you the definition. Demon possession means a demon residing in a person, exerting direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement of mind and or body. Demon possession is to be distinguished from demon influence or demon activity in relation to a person. So the work of the demon in the latter is from the outside. In demon possession, it is from within. So a demon can afflict a believer from outside. Is that a true statement or a false statement? True. true. How do you know? <laughs> from the Bible. Paul, thorn in the flesh. What else? Bible. Where in the Bible? Is Jesus tempted by Satan. Okay, Job, anybody know Job? Okay, so Satan is afflicting Job from the outside, not the inside. So Satan can afflict under the permissive will of God, believers from outside. If you have a car accident on the way home, don't say that was satanic. (laughs) But he can... Under the permissive will of God, he can do those kinds of things. Um, but anytime he does that, it's always with God's authority. So, But demon possession is from within. And by this definition, a Christian cannot be possessed by demons since he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, in other words, you can't be inhabited by both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Satan. However, a believer may be the target of demonic activity to such an extent that he may give the appearance of demon possession. Uh, occurrence of demon possession. Note this, and we'll, we'll play this out a little bit more. Demon possession is not, underline, underscore, linked to sin or immorality. As you read, particularly the New Testament, which, which is where we find a, a much fuller expression of demonology, um, it is not linked towards with sin and immorality. In other words, people don't become possessed by demons because of sin, because of witchcraft, because of inviting a demon in, because of immorality. That's not how people become demon-possessed. Um, in fact, the only time that we find demon possession being linked to moral evil is when False accusations were being made against Christ and the disciples by the Pharisees saying, your evil means that you're afflicted by a demon. And so it was a false accusation. It wasn't a true reality. Scripture uh, speaks of the fact of demon possession, but it is not does not define or identify the origin of demon possession. So in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, this is where it's pre- preeminent. We see the reality of demon possession, but there's nothing said about where it comes from. There is an inference, and we'll see that in just a minute. 
Demon-possessed people are almost always linked with those who are suffering physically. Star that, underline it, highlight it. That's that's really critical to understanding this. Uh, let me just let me just give you some examples, um, and I've given you a bunch of texts there, but um, let's just read through a few of them so that you can see this. Um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, the news about him, Christ, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all those who were ill, those suffering, catch that word, suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, uh, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. He healed them. A demoniac. In other words, he's putting a demoniac in the same category of some as someone who is epileptic. He is suffering something that is an aberration or a failure in our physical bodies, right? So he's putting it in that same category. And he puts it in the category of suffering. Not in rebellion and disobedience that you might expect. Um, 424, um, 816, something very similar. He says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Again, he's pairing demon possession with illness. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 8. Um, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. In other words, all these things get lumped together and he's putting them in the same kind of category. And it's all in the category of suffering and oppression. It's not the result of sin. That's really important as we're going to come to think about how to respond to it in just a minute. Demon possession is almost always... Uh, said to be involuntary. In other words, the the one who is demon-possessed is not demon-possessed because they want to. It's something that has happened to them. It's kind of like the person that gets cancer. Nobody wants cancer. Nobody wants a heart issue. Nobody wants a car accident. It's something that happens to them from living in a fallen world. Demon possession is the very same. Um, there is one, perhaps one, perhaps one um, exception to that, and that's... Uh, Acts 16, 16 to 18, uh, the spirit of div- divination um, is um, talked about in relation to a woman suggesting she might have been a worshiper of Apollo who worshipped at the shrine of Delphi, um, and perhaps that's where the demon came from through her worship. But again, that's unclear. It's possible, um, but it's unclear and certainly not definitive. Demon possession is um, limited to unbelievers. Only unbelievers can be possessed by a demon. We've already talked about that. Satan is never said to inhabit any individual except with Judas personally. Um, And then about the judgment of demons, uh, we find that Satan, along with his demons, will be at the end cast into the lake of fire. Again, not to rule it, but to be under God's wrath in it. Uh, what do demons and the devil do? The devil is a liar who provokes moral evil. The devil speaks through and uses false prophets. The devil is a philosopher, a theologian, creates a world system. We've talked about that. The devil tempts through external devices. He blinds people to the truth through his false philosophies and false ideologies. Uh, see that in addition to Second Corinthians 10.5, 2 Corinthians 4.3 and 4 as well. Uh, demons torment people physically, and that's particularly what we see um, throughout the um, Gospels. Sins such as unbelief, fear, anger, lust, and other addictions point to Satan's moral lordship, but never to demonization calling for casting out demons. People are victims of demonic sufferings just as they are victims of lameness, blindness, or purely physiological seizures. Demonization is not spooky or morally charged any more than fever, disability, or other afflictions are morally charged. Casting out work was done to alleviate suffering. 
So when the, Jesus and the disciples cast out demons, it was a response to alleviate suffering. Jesus heals the demonized just as he does the other sick. The result of a casting out deliverance is relief, peace, and the restoration of mental and physical capabilities. Watch this. It does not lead directly to moral improvement except as the miracle prompts grateful faith in Christ. That's David Pallison. Um, the old book from which that quote is taken is called Power Encounters. I think you can still find used copies on the Internet somewhere. The new book, it's a shorter version um, called Safe and Safe and Sound or Safe and Secure. It's, I think it's in your notes at the end. Um, really, 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 really helpful book uh, by David Pallison. I don't know how many reallys that was, but you need to buy that. Um, it's a tremendously helpful book. Uh, Satan does promote and entice people to moral evil in the inner man, yet Satan's, excuse me, Scripture's primary emphasis is on the power of the flesh and the personal responsibility of the sinner for his sin. And we've already alluded to this, but my my problem is is not Satan. My problem is not satanic temptation. My problem is me. My problem is my flesh. My problem is my mind. My, my, my problem is my affections. Now, is that influenced by the world's system? Certainly. Um, but that's not a satanic oppression. That's not my real problem. Uh, Satan, in his personal attacks against me, is, is not significant. Satan's not worried about me as an individual. Um, but nor do I think are any of his demons. Uh, But they are interested in influencing me and you and everyone else through their ideology. And and, um, my problem is not with their personal attacks. My problem is with me. Again, Pallison says this, it is always our moral evil, our unbelief, our pride, our lusts, our fears, and our wickedness that need to be repented of. Moral bondage to the devil is simultaneously a slavery to the enthralling power of sin. The Bible often talks about our responsibility, even without mentioning the devil. But the Bible never talks about the devil without mentioning our responsibility. The Bible does not portray moral evil, however heinous or devilish, as demonization to be cast out. Star that, highlight it, underwrite, underline it, right? We don't cast out fear. We don't cast out anger. We don't cast out lust. We don't cast out coveting, right? That's not something to be cast out. That's, that's something that we work out by... Um, the power of the gospel and sanctification. Uh, We minister to blind slaves with all the energies of prayer, love, and truth, fighting spiritual warfare in the classic mode. And the classic mode, as he will refer to throughout his book, is simply the gospel and sanctification. How we respond to Satan and demonization or perceived demonization is the gospel. Um, We heal people spiritually by the gospel by the process of sanctification. Um, Key principles, key passages. Let me just run through these really quickly. We've already alluded to this. Satan is a defeated foe. Can you just, whatever you need to do to mark that in big letters, he's defeated. Now, he's not just awaiting his defeat. I mean, the final defeat is he's waiting. He's waiting for, but, um, but it's done. Uh, it, it was it was done when Jesus says it is finished and it was finished. Satan was vanquished. Sin was defeated. It was all done at that point. And now this is just a defeated foe with his last skirmishes. This is like World War Two. And there are a lot of stories about this. You know, when when Japan was defeated, there were all these guys around on the islands that didn't get the news that Japan had surrendered. And so they were fighting even for like decades afterwards, thinking that they were still in a war. So that that's what Satan's doing. He's defeated. It's over. It's done. This is just the last few skirmishes. And so we don't, we don't need to be afraid of that. He has been judged and will be judged finally. His doom is certain. He was cast out of his original position in heaven. His judgment was pronounced in, at Eden. He was judged at the cross. He'll be cast out in the middle of the tribulation. He'll be bound in the pit for the duration of the millennium. He'll be cast into the fire, uh, lake of fire at the end of the millennium. Brothers and sisters, he's done. Uh, he is well done. Burned to a crisp, if you will. And I don't mean that to sound crass, but I mean, it's it's over. Um and, and we need to remember that. 
Christ defeated Satan at the cross, stripped him of his power. Um, God is now both just and the one who justifies his righteousness fully vindicated. Satan is not the one who's vindicated. Christ and his righteousness is. Um, Christ's death and resurrection resurrection make it possible for us to live a new and righteous life. Uh, It's over. And we need to rest in that. Genesis 3 is a key passage for you. Um, Satan comes to Eve, notice this, as a serpent, as a created being. So he is a spirit. He took on the form of a serpent, um, manifesting that he, again, is a created being. Um, He is powerful, he is strong, but he is not God. He is created and he is subordinate to God. And we see that even in Genesis chapter 3. The interaction between Satan and Eve also indicates the nature of our warfare against Satan. He is opposed to us. He is a li- he was a liar then. He is a liar now. He was a deceiver and is a deceiver, and he was and is a murderer. Um, he wants to he wants to confuse. He wants to entice. He wants to lead astray, and he wants our destruction. He wants to kill us. That's his delight. Suffering and death are a consequence of the moral dilemma. And they are not unjust. Pallison, uh, page 53. The problem of sin is the ultimate cause of all of our varied miseries. All of our, all of our struggles are tied back to Genesis chapter 3. Not directly. So, you know, if, if you get cancer, that is likely not a direct result of sin. I mean, there are things you can do that can um, provoke that or stimulate that. But... In general, we would say that's just part of living in a fallen world. But the fallen world comes from Genesis 3. So everything gets broken at Genesis chapter 3. No. No, it's just the result of sin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry? Okay. Go to the ACBC website. And download Greg Gifford's message from this last year workshop on mental illness. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I went to it. I don't, I don't recall the name. Illness is physical. Mental is spiritual. Those are two different things. So the, the culture has, that's, that's a satanic deception. The culture has, has put together two things that are not put togetherable. So they've taken inner man and they said inner man can be physically sick, as it, as it were. So there's nothing that you can do to fix inner man with medicine. And that's what the world is attempting to do through so-called mental illness. Um, the the, the, the um, perversion of the mind and the heart need to be fixed by the Spirit of God, not by some physiological means. So listen to that. It's Greg, Greg Gifford. I don't recall the name of it. Mm-hmm. Melissa? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, there are things you can do. Okay, so both of my in-laws, my, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, um, both died of lung cancer. And they got their lung cancer. My father-in-law spoke... My father-in-law um, smoked two packs of cigarettes for 40 years. I, I think we can safely say there was a direct line from his addictive behavior to his cancer. So uh, there can be a connection. But in general, we would say, you know, if somebody gets pancreatic cancer, it's probably just part of living in this broken world. Yes. We can't. Yeah. I'm the, yeah, that's behind a curtain we're not allowed to see. We just have to. There's a curtain there. And all I can see is there's an illness. Now, it's fair to ask, and I think this is what's going on in in James 5. It's fair to ask, I'm, hush. (laughs) Y'all have family texts that just blow up your phone or whatever, and I I forgot to put my, 
Yeah, I forgot to put airplane mode. There we go. Um, the last thing I do before I get up to preach always is I'm on airplane mode because I don't want text streaming through my iPad while I'm preaching. Um, I think it's fair in James 5 to say, is there a connection between my physical suffering and something I've done? And and I've gone to people who are suffering, you know, hey, pray for my healing. Okay, I'll pray for your healing. But is there something else we need to be praying for here? Um, is there something else going on? And and that, those are fair questions. But most of the time, we're just not going to see that. I think it's mind versus brain, how good your proof. Yes, okay. mind versus brain, yeah. yeah. But if the per- what the person did, you know, in their suffering, like say if they're suffering physically because of the decisions they made prior to coming to Christ. Sure, you bet. But then that's in God's sovereignty. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, but, but there are natural consequences and there are divine consequences, right? Okay. So if I if I leave here and I jump on uh, 377 and I say, I'm really tired, I just want to get home. I'm hungry, I'm tired. Actually, I'm not hungry, but let's say I am hungry, I want to go home. Um and I say, I don't care who's in front of me. I'm punching it, right? <laughs> and from, uh, from you know, here to the subway that's halfway down, um, I'm doing 85, okay? And let's say Brother Tyler sees me along the way, right? There are natural con- there are consequences that come from that. That's not that's not divine punishment. That's not divine wrath. That's just. If I do 85 in a 55 or a 45 zone, there are going to be consequences that come to the, to me from that as a result of my sin. Is that also God's plan for how he wants to use it? Nope. Nope. How does God work all that together? I don't know. Yeah. Right? So God God's not the author of sin, but he uses sin to accomplish his purposes. How do you know that? God used the greatest sin in the history of this world to accomplish your redemption. So who nailed who nailed Christ to the cross? Well, I did. Well, the Romans did. Well, the Jews did. And the Father did. The Father put him there. Why? <laughs> to accomplish our redemption. So um, if you're interested in that, um, Piper, probably 15 years ago, Spectacular Sins and the... Uh, and the glory of God, something, something with glory of God. He's always got the glory of God in there, right? Um, I don't remember. Spectacular sins is the key, uh, key, key phrase there. That'll, that'll help you. We, no, we, we, we've got five minutes, and I've got a lot of ground to cover. So y'all are great, but uh, Job 1 and 2. Um, yeah, Job 1 and 2 you're familiar with. And I'm just going to run through these. I think you have all these notes, don't you? Okay, so I'm just going to run through these. You know this stuff. Um, Let me get here to what we need. Okay, biblical methodology. Is there a biblical mandate or permission to cast out demons? Oh, you warm my heart. Uh, note this, only four New Testament books refer to casting out demons. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Interestingly, John is omitted. John doesn't refer to casting out demons. No biblical passages ever commend or command believers to cast out demons. Um, Pallison says... Um, I think this is from Pallison. Most casting out of demons today is done as a means of battling and overcoming sin. Scripture never provides that as a means of our warfare against the flesh. Scripture, he says, loudly rejects applying casting out methods to include our warfare with sin. The Gospels are entirely consistent with both the Old Testament and the Epistles. What should properly be called spiritual warfare is always conducted in the classic mode, that is, living a life of faith and obedience. The Bible neither uh, gives us a direct command 
to do casting out healing, nor teaches us how to do it such that we should presume it is an abiding activity. The consistent and cumulative silence of Scripture about casting out healing ought to give its advocates serious pause. And so the Bible just consistently talks about the way to deal with this is repentance, faith, and obedience, sanctification. Uh, There is a distinction between moral evil and situational evil. So moral evil refers to sin in any of its forms. So that's the things that people uh, believe, the things that people do. Man's always responsible for his immorality. God will always judge every form of immorality because he hates it. But situational evil includes any of the consequences that come from moral evil. Things like broken relationships, car accidents, cancer. Pallison says it is suffering, hardship, unpleasant and harmful events and even death. So that's situational evil. Moral evil causes situational evil either directly or indirectly. So sometimes there's a direct line between the moral evil and the suffering and sometimes there's an indirect line. And the indirect line may be as far back as from Genesis 3. There's fallenness. The creation is broken. Romans 8, creation is groaning. And we experience the difficulty of that groaning creation. Comprehensive evil, Pallison says, sin and suffering defines the human condition and the human dilemma. Um, Do you have that long quote by Pallison? Uh, Scripture consistently portrays demons as situational evil. Okay, so just listen to this. I should have put it in your notes. Scripture consistently portrays demons as situational evil, not moral evil. They are evils that hurt and abuse people. Demonization is a fact recognized and identified by its expression through miserable conditions such as blindness, deafness, paralysis, dementia, and seizures. Sins such as unbelief, fear, anger, lust, and other addictions point to Satan's moral lordship, but never demonization calling for casting out ministry. People are victims of demonic sufferings just as they are victims of lameness, blindness, or purely psychological seizures. Again, that's Pallison. So if you don't have that book, you need to get that book. You'll find that really, really refreshing and helpful. Uh, Remember as well um, that there are a lot of aspects of Jesus' ministry that we don't copy because he's God and we're not. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that he did and taught that we can't because we don't have his mind and we don't have his power and his authority. And all those things were designed to authenticate who he was as the Messiah. And that's why he was healing, that's why he was restoring, that's why he was teaching. Christians should avoid relying on uh, their own power and authority for dealing with demons. Even uh, the only named archangel in the scriptures, Michael, refused to rely on his strength in dealing with Satan. So he refused to rebuke, to revile Satan. If the greatest angel in heaven refuses to rebuke Satan... I think that ought to give us pause to say, I rebuke you, Satan. I don't have that authority. Michael doesn't have it. If he doesn't have it, I sure don't have it. Um, So what is the biblical pattern for handling suspected demon possession? You get somebody in in front of you and you think, this guy's controlled by another power. What do you do? Repent of sin. The gospel. And then practice the basic pattern of sanctification. Put off sin, put on righteousness, renew your mind. Take in, be absorbed by the word of God, resist sin. Um, it, it's, we don't need to cast anybody out. We have everything that we need in the scriptures to deal with them because we have the gospel. Um, Frederick Leahy, I think, um, gives you, you've got that quote, I think, right? The greatest weapon. Do you have that? Uh, The greatest weapon which the church possesses possesses is the word of God proclaimed in the fullness of his spirit. Here are the facts and no fact is understood when divorced from the divine revelation of the Holy Scripture. The gospel unfolded in Scripture is said to be the power of God unto salvation. When we face Satan with the sword of the spirit, we do so with the weapon he dreads most. 
Our Lord in His temptation used no other weapon. Let the Lord's people unite to rely in faith and obedience upon the sole mighty word of God and God will give peace to them, blessing their efforts in accordance with the sovereign purpose of grace and using the prayerful proclamation of that word to bring about the ultimate doom of the adversary. Um, We have what we need in the scriptures to combat him. That is from the book Satan Cast Out, Frederick Leahy, and then there's the book David Pallison, Power Encounters, which has been updated. Um, I think it's called Safe and Sound. That should be in your notes now, I think. All right, let me pray, and you're dismissed. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for these weekends. They've been a delight to us. Uh, We've been sharpened um, in the instruction. We've been sharpened in the questions that have been asked and answered. You've you've, uh, made our minds to think and might as our minds think and process and affirm the truth. Might our hearts be renewed so that we walk in greater conformity to Christ. Thank you, Father, for your good grace to us in revealing yourself to us in your word. And might we be better students of your word and better counselors of your word and better ministers for you because of what we have learned in these weekends together. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Uh, Would you bless them as they go home and use what they've learned in their local churches. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.